Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. I'm really excited to be joined on the deep dive by two incredible workers and thinkers in the space of design and art and strategy. They cover a lot and this is going to be one of our more interesting conversations. So my first guest is Kenyatta McLean. She, her, hers. She's an urban planner and strategist interested in neighborhood resource distribution and heritage conservation. She's a founding member of Blackspace and former board co-chair. She works with organizations to deepen their understandings of spatial narratives with curated conversations and to develop projects centered in racial justice. As an economic development practitioner, she developed strategy, engagement plans, and commercial corridor-focused programming for multiple city-led neighborhood revitalization projects in New York City. Emma Osore, she, her, hers, is a participatory designer and creative community builder and commissioned mixed media artists. She's a founding member of Blackspace and the director of community at New Inc. She has spoken to national audiences at Harvard, HBO, Municipal Art Society, Pratt University, and NYU. She's also been published by Columbia University Press and the Deem Journal. And I'm really excited to have you both representing Blackspace with me on the deep dive. So happy to be here. Excited. So I want to start with some really basic questions because many of our listeners are not going to be familiar with Black Space, not because of the credibility of the work, but because many people are not used to thinking of the way we think about our environments, the way we do design and planning as areas that need to be interrogated through the lens of Blackness. So I want to give you an opportunity to just talk about what Black Space does and how you came to be two founding people for the organization. So I'm going to give you, Kenyatta, an opportunity to start. Thank you. When I think about Black Space, I think about first our focus to create a home for ourselves as Black urbanists. And that's even in our name, like why we're focused around this idea of Black Space. It comes up for us in a multiple ways. One, being a place for each other to unlearn some of the not so progressive or liberatory practices that we were trained on in our different disciplines, such as urban planning or architecture or within art and design. And then it's also a space for us to amplify and deepen our cultural knowledges around the way that our different communities create and make space. So that's what Black Space has really been for us since we started. And then we show up in the world in a multitude of ways, whether it be workshops where we share our thought leadership or through projects where we're able to co-create with community leaders, create space in Black communities. And Emma? Yeah, I think I come to this work from a deep sense of anger that I noticed as a young person growing up around how the patterns of daily life that I was doing as my routines 
were racialized. And as a black biracial person, I could see sort of a white black divide in how people were treated, what people had access to. And that was very troubling for me. And so I think a lot of the ways, and that showed up in public systems, public pools, public schools, who went to which school, all of those things, how people got to school were all patterns I was noticing that were divided racially. And it is a question that sort of led me to urban planning as an undergrad and to this work today in black space, where, as Kenyatta said, it's really inquiring, like, why are things the way they have been? And as an adult, obviously, I have agency and freedom and some power to do something or change things. And so black space is the way that I've found to work in community with other black urbanists who are thinking intersectionally about how we might offer solutions or offer new ways, new pathways of thinking to have our public systems be better for us. And I think that's been what I've been able to help enact as a founding member of Black Space and found that there were a lot of other people who felt similarly, you know, had different experiences, but had grown up in predominantly Black places or not, and seen a need, but also felt conscious about the issues and were willing to change things. And that energy sort of came together into what we now know as the Black Space Urbanist Collective. And in both of your responses, there's this notion of seeing, of going out into the world and seeing how it exists around you, participating in it. And obviously with planning and thinking about cityscapes, there's a physicality to that notion. But there's also an invisibility that happens that enables the physical structuring and mechanisms that we see all around us. And I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about that blend of the invisible and visible as it pertains to how you think about manifesting Black space. And I'd I'd like to start with you, Emma, and then we'll go to you, Kenyatta. Yeah, as you were sort of sharing that insight, I'm thinking a lot about the work that we do both on two planes. One is with urbanists. So that means architects, artists, urban planners, policy people, transportation designers, people who are passionate about the work of the built environment and systems infrastructure. And then the second level is sort of projects out in the world where we're making impact directly with communities or partners or each other. And when I think about invisible and visible, I think that the invisible work that I find Black Space uh, does well is around influencing people who are urbanists to think differently and change the way that they're working. And that comes from this like knowledge and lived experience as a person who's worked in many institutions and has tried to influence change internally <laughs> and knowing that it's possible to orient these systems towards justice, liberation, equity, equality with and on behalf of Black people, places, and cultures. And so I think a part of the invisible work is like urbanists need to do work differently. Like the day-to-day decisions that we make as these like technically trained white-collar folks sometimes influence very directly the built environment experiences 
that I'm having, that you're having, that Kenyatta's having, that Black communities are having generally, and that that work is as critically important, the practice, the way we make decisions about our places, as is the actual built projects. And I think that's sort of what the manifesto helps people see, (laughs) as you're saying, is that there are different ways to go about making places that can manifest in something that is better for all of us and especially for Black people. And so the invisible is sort of this day-to-day decision-making and then the visible is sort of the built projects that actually end up being what we experience in public spaces. Yeah, and I would add to that, I would say all of that and speak to some of our invisible work in working with one another, right? And the way that we've built our organization and our, well, built our collective into an organization, right? That's like the process that we are within. The way that we are doing that is important to note because a lot of us in the collective were trained in a lot of predominantly white institutions or maybe worked in predominantly white institutions or agencies. And there's a culture, a work culture that comes along with that. And it's been very important for us to recenter ourselves around this manifesto and think about what does it mean for us to show up to a board meeting together, right? And center this manifesto. How does it flow differently? What does it mean for us to hire our first staff, right? And what do our job descriptions look like? What do our process for just like any of the different pieces around like how we will function? And then thinking about that within our network, because we have affiliate groups and trying to make sure that we're also encouraging folks that in their own autonomous way to center the manifesto. So that's like the last piece on the work culture bit that I think is really important to speak to is the fact that we are a collective of multiple individuals that are then sitting in these multiple kind of local collectives, whether it be in New York City, in Indianapolis, in Oklahoma, or in Atlanta, or Chicago. But we're coming together to work with each other around these 14 different principles, and they allow us the grace to then be individuals with each other. I think that's something that a lot of us haven't got to experience in our work. And then on the visible side, exactly to what Emma was speaking, I think a lot of folks see and will see our workshops and our conferences as places for them to tangibly touch or start to design out what it, the world could look like with the manifesto. And then we're continuing to build our portfolio on having built projects. You both mentioned, and I'm glad it kind of segued into this because this was a point of mine that was actually a little later on in the scribble notes, but we're going to bump it to the top because you did mention this idea of coming through institutions, both academic and professional, with a particular perspective. And what really resonates with me just generally is that the schools in which your work is based, there's a lot of architecture, there's a lot of engineering, there's a lot of planning and policy. And of course, many people, from what I've been able to ascertain, in the collective are also artists. So I want to make, but even those spaces come with some of those same sort of epistemological ways of valuating things. So that's sort of a, a long intro to kind of parsing through the norms 
that we all bring with us as we walk into particular situations, especially when it comes to this type of work? How do you work to make sure that your voices come through all of that history, (laughs) so to speak? And I'll start with you, Kenyan. I think it's your turn to start. (laughs) I would start with it's hard, right? I think it's incredibly, incredibly hard. And I've already probably said this multiple times, but that word unlearn has been very important for us. And to this point that you're talking about, once you move through these different systems, for myself, I, I did my undergrad at UCLA, I did my grad at MIT, and then I worked in a number of different places, but a lot of my working career was in New York City government. And so, like you're saying, those institutions have set ideas about what a, a community plan is, right? What is the spectrum or the level of community involvement that we're comfortable with? And there's also this power dynamic that's built into the way that a lot of these uh, schools train us and also the way that our jobs then affirm us to be urbanist. And so I am a bit outspoken, been like that since I was young. And so what that's looked like for me is being okay to be loud, right? And I think Black space allows me to truly do that, right? Where I'm not, I don't have to just say the one comment in the meeting that I'm like, okay, this at least helps that, right? I can, the whole meeting is about, let's make sure this is is going well. So I think that's the way that I really find a way to be able to still be myself is in these conversations. And that, to me, that gets me to think about brunch, which is how we started, right? So we met each other at the Black and Design Conference in 2015, a number of us. And then we decided to continue the conversations we were starting in between conference sessions. We decided to continue those in our homes. And so there's something about being able to be authentically with one another in community that really allows you to show up as yourself. And so I think that's really been important for me. And I would pick up from there that I think one of the things that we've been thoughtful about is because we're sort of creating this organization new, we get to determine the language we use, we get to determine the organizing structures. And really, like, sometimes that's been hard to like, acknowledge, (laughs) because it's so easy for us to just have picked up something that already works somewhere else, especially in these predominantly white institutions where a lot of us work and learn. And so I think just sitting in that, like, oh, we get to decide. And like, where would we go to get inspiration for how we should move forward was very interesting. And I found a lot of inspiration in terms of like how we assert our voice in the texts of like Black feminist queer organizers. And even this example of brunch, right, as a place where we can gather, feel cared for, be nourished, be in community together, that's like a science and also an art, but it comes from a long legacy and history of Black queer women organizers and women in general, and lots of other people finding that way of organizing really brings people together and can move people forward and begin movements or start organizations. And so I think even in terms of finding our voice, there's a lot for me, at least, as one of the folks who's been there since the beginning of looking at our past and saying, what examples have we had and what's resonating and how might we enact and and build upon those things that we already have, those assets, those knowings, 
which Kenyatta talks about a lot. She's like, yes, unlearning, but also we know stuff. And like, we should stand on top of that knowledge that we have that maybe isn't talked about in that way. And also not even centering another way of doing it. Just saying, oh, we have these tools. These are value sets that we can use to move our organization forward. And so I think it's just been a process of like acknowledging the value that we carry as a way to just determine for ourselves how we move forward and build the organization, which also informs how we work with other people and choose partners and all that stuff. In the manifesto, the Black Space Manifesto, to give it full title, has been already alluded to in this conversation, and I plan on spending a decent amount of time going through it. And what I've been hoping to do is, before we get to it, is just set just some broader philosophical groundwork that, because I think the manifesto in and of itself is so important because it's not merely reactive to the environment that we are currently in and the moment we're in, but it's a forward-looking document. At least in the manner in which I read it, I took it as a forward-thinking document. So I think it deserves quite a bit, bit of grounding in terms of understanding what led to writing something so intentional rather than just talking about the thing that has been breathed into life through that intention. And as a Brooklyn native and a New York native, it's what also resonated with me is this notion of what is a city, because urban spaces are predominantly what we're talking about. Those are not the only spaces, but they're the spaces for this conversation what is a city and who is it for? Who does it serve? And that seems to be at the center of a lot of your thinking. That city doesn't need to be just New York City. It can be any number of cities. And so I want to give you both an opportunity to maybe tackle a fairly broad and open-ended question on purpose around a city and its intentionality and, and who it serves, because I think that is so centrally important to the organizing principles that you both are discussing. So I believe it's your turn, Emma, to start with that question. I'm kind of losing track and you did the perfect segue that time. So you kind of threw me, I didn't have to tap you. So you kind of threw me (laughs) off there. (laughs) Yeah. I think that this big question of like, what is a city? Who does it serve? And also like, what is the manifesto? And how does it relate is how I interpreted your question, at least I'm going to go with it, is I think cities are more so ecosystems. They're like kind of this magnet. They have this magnetizing effect and they're ecosystems of lots of services, people, places, things happening in any one corner, any one block at the same time. And I think respecting cities from this perspective of an ecosystem which I think can also be related to a rural place, a region, a country, something with boundaries. But there are some cultures that get created, there are systems, there are kinds of people. And I think really trying to understand what all of those are, and especially how they interact, is something that's always been interesting to me as an urbanist and sort of how I come into this work and practice What's happening at the intersections? What happens when people collide? What's happening on the seams, at the boundaries, in the center, at the margins? Like I'm constantly 
like assessing that in any ecosystem, which can be a group of people at brunch, or it can be New York City, if you're thinking about it in that way. And the way that I think that sort of is related in our work and in the manifesto is really sort of this code of like how you should then operate, if that is true, right? Assuming that we are a complex ecosystem in whatever environment we're in, at our jobs, walking down the street, whatever, that the manifesto is kind of like a code for how to navigate complex systems and how we could actually be generative and like supportive of each other and respect each other and move. And so I think I've never said it kind of like that before, but I've never been asked the question before in this sort of juxtaposed way. So I think it offers sort of a pathway when things are complex, interdisciplinary, changing every moment, which is happening in cities, rural places, regional places all the time, as well in our daily lives. And so I think it's refreshing for people for that reason. It offers a little something to hang on to, to help navigate the future, the uncertainty, and in a direction that like centers real people and real human emotions <laughs> and also respects the actions of like designing and planning and manifesting something in real life. Kenyatta, throw it to you. Yeah, I one, I love that, Emma. I like that you asked us this question because we get to hear each other answer. <laughs> I'm very much agree with this ecosystem piece. I think of a city as as all of these different sets of relationships, but then particularly like they're a bit they're manipulated relationships, if we think about it, because like capital U, capital P urban planners are deciding where you're gonna put different resources. Business community folks are deciding where they're gonna locate jobs and also who's gonna have access to those. Policymakers are deciding where people are going to live in terms of affordability and all those pieces. So I agree with the ecosystem piece. I think the way that humans <laughs> come into the city is by manipulating that ecosystem or that set of relationships. And I think the manifesto is acknowledging that manipulation, right? And we attempted to articulate from our different cultural kind of knowings and experiences, some of the manipulations, like ways that we see an ability to stop right, to stop doing that and to change the way we're doing and to recenter everyone. Because if we think about these different, an ecosystem, it has multiple different communities. And there's one like, what is it? Unintended consequences. So that comes up, that term analogy comes up in community plans. It comes up when you're reading like a urban planning research journal that we did that we tried this and there was all these unintended consequences. I push back on that, right? And I think the manifesto and like a lot of us push back on that because are they that unintended after this many years <laughs> and decades of doing this whole city thing and manipulating all these relationships and seeing what comes from it? So I think the manifesto is really, yeah, just calling us out <laughs> to acknowledge and center communities that haven't been before. It's funny because... This is another point that I kind of jotted down and I wasn't sure where I was going with it and I'm still not sure where I'm going with it. So bear with me, but because I kind of wrote down just two words as a prompt, urbanist and naturalist, because urbanist and urbanism comes up a lot in your words and your framing. And it's kind of the classic way in which we're thinking about it. And as I was reading the manifesto and the way I think about these things, a lot of my work is around complexity and culture. The examples that 
I know I've been leaning on most recently, the last few years, have been actually natural in their origin. Even as a city kid who ain't never really seen grass like that growing up, and you know, I wasn't going out hiking, quintessential New York jungle type of experience. But yet now at this part of my life, I'm thinking about the complexity of forest and mushrooms and fractal relationships and how they think about our world and our life. But yet we're still using urban terms, which speak to the metaphor of that onyx we started the conversation with offline and Tim's and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I don't even know if there's a question in there, but I'm curious as to how you guys, because a lot of what you're speaking about, I feel the natural elements coming through that. And so I want to leave space for that in this conversation because maybe they're not in conflict with one another. So curious as to the general thoughts. And I think Kenyatta, you're up first this time around. Oh, I'm ready. Oh, she's, she's ready. <laughs> she's ready. <laughs> oh. One of your guests had a book on mushrooms and I like am very excited to read it. Um, so, but yes, yes, yes. So this gets into us thinking about like our own knowings, right? And so for me, I was raised by a farmer from Alabama, right? And a teacher from North Philly. And there are just knowings that they have about how the city or cities that they grew up in or cities that they moved to in their migration uh, back to those relationships, the relationships they were allowed to have in those cities are not allowed to have. And then because like farm and just like growing has been a part of my like existence, I can't remember. I like to say people's names that I'm referencing. I can't remember the guy's name, but there was someone that spoke at, at again, Black in Design. You're going to hear this a lot with us. I think he spoke on, at the 2017 conference and he talked about biomimicry. And I was like, oh, he just made my mind explode. And from there, I've been very interested to think about even us as a community, right? Like as a collective, as a platform. We talk sometimes about the Black space ecosystem or galaxy. And my tabs recently, before the mushrooms, because right now I am <laughs> digging into the mushrooms, were about like galaxy development and formation. And Emma and I have been talking with partners about how galaxies form and the differences between smaller galaxies and larger galaxies and how we naturally are then mimicking that. And so I'm, yeah, I think there is definitely, we started in New York City. So I think that's what finds us grounding ourselves in urban center and thinking about the urban environment. But yeah, as we continue, as the network grows to have different areas be a part of it. And just as we grow, I think we're all coming to learn because a lot of us, whether we were in a urban center or not, just as black and brown people just didn't get access to nature in the same way. Because I'm also to what you kind of started this question with, I'm like relearning <laughs> hiking and being connected with nature, even though it's something that my family has traditionally done because we were often, that's where we were banished to <laughs> when people didn't want us in the city center. So yes, just yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And I think your instincts are right, picking up on some of those natural elements and organizing. And I guess to add to what Kenyatta shared, there is this meeting point where like nature and like I read a quote maybe yesterday that was like, humans have always been a part of nature. There's no like pristine nature. Like that myth is kind of a myth because we've always been a part of our natural environment. And I loved that because it's true. 
And also there is this interaction. What is the interaction there between human makings of whatever kind and what nature is doing and being at any given time either? And I think that is an interesting meeting point. And I think Black Space is trying to, as an organization, we do use a lot of those natural themes. We just came out of what we called a chrysalis year, where we were literally going underground, but to do this very human endeavor of like focusing on our financial operations, right? Like, <laughs> so I think we try to play in between and also working sort of in this nomenclature of like natural systems in some way affirms our humanity. Uh, meaning like if an email doesn't get sent or if things aren't perfect, like that's okay, you know, that we are human and those things will get missed. And leveraging these ideas of like natural rhythms or slowing down or moving at the speed of trust, like implies that it's not linear. It's not like all going to be figured out tomorrow which is very much sort of a antidote to like this capitalist system that we're waking up in every morning. And so I think a part of the natural systems affirm our humanity in the ways that we are not perfect and we are moving in an organic way through building this organization, through moving through the world, through building out projects. So I don't know if that connection quite makes sense, if it's clear what I'm saying, but there is a way that moving in a blob or an amoeba or knowing that mushrooms grow in disturbed environments. Like these are things that help say, yes, we're on the right path, right? We are working within our environment. We are doing what our organisms around us or the people around us are giving us the signals that we should do now, right? It's like this affirms this communication style that is not just like, well, we said we're going to do X. And so then we're just going to get to X in one year in you know 365 days. Like we're just trying to move in a different rhythm and pattern, which is also really hard in design professions, right? There are huge budgets. There are long timelines, but that like have very distinct projects. One thing has to go after the other to get built. And so it's definitely also serves as an antidote to that way of working as well, which makes it very, <laughs> sometimes that makes it very hard to share our knowledge and points and whatever, because that's the context is like very large, massive, methodical, human engineered <laughs> processes and, and, and things. So. You know, the capitalism raises its head there because even in that acknowledgement of the long timelines that go into projects and the the sort of structure that has to be maintained in order to do them. I look around at a lot of the stuff that we build just in a general sense and the way in which let's just focus on New York because I'm here, right? <laughs> and the frame of how the city has changed. And even with all the timelines and the technology, the stuff they're building is kind of terrible and falls apart pretty quickly. I had great joy a few weeks ago, reading that New York Times article about that super tall skyscraper where everything's falling apart and leaking. And as I read that, I thought to myself, well, this is kind of obvious, right? Like super skinny, tall building that stands 90 stories up isn't going to have the most stable internal engineering running. But yet the capitalist desire to build 
$20 million condos overrode all of the logic and planning and knowledge that has existed in engineering forever, right? Like cathedrals used to take 200 years to build and they're still kind of standing and we're not even going to get into the pyramids and all that kind of stuff, right? Like, so the urgency to economically market to a particular group of people seems to override the sort of natural and organic common sense that you've both so eloquently discussed. So how do we, using so much of the manifesto, how do we push back against the propensity to go fast in order to serve the worst thing? And I think that's your turn, Emma, I think. But I might have thrown that up a jump ball. So whoever... Yeah, yeah, it was. (laughs) Hmm. I think what we're building is moving in this way because it's meant to be. I want to say that we've been building in a way that we can be sustainable over time. And that is maybe a different outlook than like that building that you've mentioned, right? If we burn out now, like that doesn't work. And so how can we methodically grow in a way that feels sustainable for everyone, the organizers, the board members, the staff team, the affiliate groups, other folks who are pushing in for other projects. Like how do we build it in a way that it doesn't need to be fast? It doesn't need to be urgent despite the pressure that we receive all the time. Humble brag or not, I don't know, but like the press is really pressed on what Black Space is doing. And that pressure creates this urgency that like, I think we've been really good at resisting. There's a way of balancing this for the long term and that's sustainable. I also, yeah, there was another point I was going to make, but maybe Kenyatta can push in and I'll, I'll piggyback again. Yeah. I mean, the thing that came up for me was just this point of humans being so interested in defying nature, right? Like I don't, it's a fascination of a lot of folks And this comes up with capital like this because we are socialized and raised within capitalism and operate within it. It's always this push to like, let's defy gravity. Let's defy this thing. And yeah, it just like you said, doesn't make sense. And I just laughed because I think about like, that's what all of like my aunts or grandmas have like, they're always questioning or have always questioned me about. Does that make sense to you? Right. Like, and I just sometimes we need them to sit people down and ask them that. And again, that kind of gets to that cultural knowing because we haven't, we were talking, I don't know when we were talking about this. It was some brunch or like meeting, but we're just talking about how Black people, it's been due to, again, back to these manipulated relationships with the city, we haven't been allowed to have space for ourselves. Right. So because we then, like as people have to become home for one another so that at any point we can up and go. And like, even that, like to me, that is a very, like that's us like naturally reacting to this like manipulated system. Whereas now I'm going somewhere and I don't know where I started. Hold on. Um, (laughs) Coming back to this idea of like grappling with like current design practices and like uh, measures kind of that in all of the money and all of the time, we still get things such as you mentioned, right? These skyscrapers that are falling apart. I just think that that is the articulation of mother nature, letting us know that we're not making sense, right? And that capitalism is not, that values 
that we have distilled from that and now have centered, they're not helping us. And that's why we're trying to introduce new values to center because they can like help us do things like center the lived experience, move at the speed of trust, right? And that you naturally then have to kind of slow down in doing that. Again, the manifesto keeps getting woven quite naturally into the conversation. You both have quoted from it a few times, and we're going to link to the manifesto in the show notes because I think a very important document by no means captures the scope of the intention of the organization and the work and the expertise that lays within the collective. But I think it is a useful prompt to better tackle so many of the issues that you're all doing in real time, right? So I don't want to seem overly obsessed with just a document because it is so much more than a document, but I think the document is important. And so speaking specifically to the manifesto, there's three things in particular that I want to just start with, which is, you've mentioned it before, the move at the speed of trust. So let's underline kind of the trust bucket. Be humble learners who practice deep listening. So let's kind of underline the listening piece and then celebrate, catalyze, and amplify Black joy. So let's underline the joy piece, right? So trust, listening, joy. These are not the things that most people engaged in planning and engaged in the hard technical sciences and work and art that builds things into the world usually have at the center of their practice. So trust, listening, joy as radical concepts. Why was it important to focus there in particular? And I think it's on you, Kenyatta. Or, oh, it's Emma. Okay. Oh, it's on. Oh, you look up like the up was pointing to where you live in the bubble, not the raising of the finger. Yeah, ah, it was. Technology. Okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> trust, listening, joy, centering. Kenyatta, you first. Yeah. I think I trust, I think about just quickly where we were strangers. I mean, now Emma is like another half of me. <laughs> like, you know, we laugh at all the time about how we're becoming one one woman. But um, yeah, be, acknowledging that we are strangers, and then acknowledging that we're coming from different experiences and different cultures. So um, trust is so such an essential piece to that. Um, and allowing time for trust was our way of again pushing back on what a lot of us were experiencing. Um, in the way that projects were happening. And I think that it's a strange concept to a lot of people, right? Like it now it's a buzzword, right? So it's like cute to say that you're doing stuff with trust, but the work behind actually like laying things on the table with each other, disagreeing with each other, coming to amends with one another, right? These are the ways that we actually build trust and it takes time. It takes being uncomfortable and getting to the points of the other points that we underlined, it takes listening. Listening becomes really important for us because of that word expert that comes up in a lot of our fields. We tag trained architects, planners, artists, or you know, policymakers as experts so much to a point that I think that as humans, we naturally build an ego around that. And that can then stop people from hearing someone tell you that that bus stop should not be there, right? And why that bus stop is not working. It doesn't matter how great and how many hours you spent on that rendering because that bus stop doesn't work for me. 
right? And um, that was something that I, I know I experienced and why I really appreciated this, like, be humble learners who practice deep listening, like, peace for myself as someone who like, I, I speak a lot, I talk a lot, um, I have a lot of opinions. So it's a great reminder for me to take a moment and hear people. And then like the joy aspect, I think that that has been critical for us because so much of just like, you know, whether you're talking about whether it's black history, present or future, especially once folks outside, like if it's not just us talking about it, when we get to like national stages or like multiracial stages, there's a lot of focus around the trauma, the resilience. If somebody says black communities, you know, they about to say they're so resilient, so strong, like these words, which we are like, we get it and we are, but we also are really joyful people. Right. And that is like our battery in our pack is joy. And so we I think that this really allowed us to um, think about that as like, I think you called, uh, name these as like radical organizing practices. Like how can we just continue to power the things that are powering us versus on focusing on the things that are, are um, taking away from us? Yes. I literally have almost nothing to add because just agree with that a hundred percent. I guess one of the things I would say is that oftentimes in these like community engagement processes, especially as it relates to historically black places and neighborhoods, the thing that continues to come up is this element of distrust that people will do right by literally where we live. And there has been a history and legacy of destruction and violence on behalf of the city. So there's also this trying to understand, I think, as Black urbanists who work in cities or work in these placemaking endeavors, what does a trusting relationship between a city entity, right, and like an amorphous, multifaceted Black place, like what is that? What could that look like? And like if we centered that in something like the manifesto, that then we would have a way to see it out when it's happening out in the world, but then also to see for ourselves how we might enact that and how we might share that learning with others in order to heal sort of that trust that literally most places you go, that is something that just comes up a lot, is this broken trust over many, many, many centuries. <laughs> and so that I think is a provocation for us to figure out how do you build trust? How do you heal? And a lot of that comes from like us looking at what is joyful, what is working, what is what do you love about this place? What are your favorite memories that goes to that listening for stories and connections and relationships and also centering joy, not saying, well, we heard that like health statistics suck here, like we're going to come in and drop vaccines in, right? Like, of course, that those kinds of things are okay, and those statistics are real, but I think there's a different way to approach from an asset-based perspective and like build upon what's working and trust, listening, and joy are central. And I think joy also comes through like culture, right? Like what are people doing to celebrate themselves, celebrate the neighborhood, express themselves personally or the stories of their families or whatever, and leveraging that as a way to 
hear people actually in their fullest expressions or in their visions for themselves. And all of that stuff is like already happening, whether black space is there or not. And so a part of our role also for better or for worse, which harkens back to some other conversations we're having is a little bit around sort of what this manifesto does, which is articulate our value and inspire people to take action in a way that is accessible to us first and foremost, and to the partners and communities we work with, and then whoever else that it's accessible to, that's great too. And so I think it came out of like this, this trust, joy, listening came out of actually us trying to do that anyway, in our first neighborhood level project, and feeling like, oh, we want to hold on to this, like we want to keep figuring this out. Like we want to keep building joy, keep uplifting listening as a critical tool. And we were showing how it could be done. And then we like wrote that down somewhere and we shared that with whomever. So I think like, yeah, we were actually enacting these things, which told us, okay, this is impossible. Like, so all this broken trust, like it starts to break down whatever those narratives are about, well, people don't trust us. It's like, well, there's a different way to to work. We've done it. We're going to show you how to do it. And like, cause this has to stop, you know, that, that this train, this like train wreck keeps happening. So yeah, that's, that would be my long-winded answer. Long-winded answers. So-called long-winded answers are more than welcome here. The show's called a deep dive. We're not, ex- we're not expecting pithy one-liners. I want to hit like, <sighs> thank God. Yeah. Thank, thank goodness <laughs> for that. Right. I want to get two more things in before we go to the drop. When I have two guests on, I usually skip off the dome because I'd rather use the time to kind of get a couple more questions in before we do the drop. And I want to pick up on the cultivate wealth piece because there's a longer description than just cultivate wealth, which I think speaks to a very like, if someone just read that without reading the context below it, it would sound very basic, but it's an idea around the wealth of time, talent, and treasure that provide freedom to risk, fail, learn, and grow. And at a recent talk I did, I highlighted this idea of time as this eternal thing that has often been been what's demanded by labor movements, right? So labor movements are trying very much to hold on to their time and their ability to collectively bargain and all that good stuff. And wealth as connected to time, I think is an interesting concept because often when we're talking about urban spaces and development and wealth, it's in a mode of development. So even those who look like us, and I'm not, I love Jay-Z, so this is not a Jay-Z knock, but Nipsey Hussle, they all about, let's buy the block, right? Which to them looks like a model, not unlike the models we already have. It's just black people doing it, you know, but it's for the community. And this offers a different notion of wealth in connection to time and the other things we described. So I want to give an opportunity to, again, ask why that as an organizing principle, you felt that was important. And then we'll get to one more question and then the drop. So I'm out of time. I don't remember who goes next, but now, see, you point to the side and she on the side to me, she's below. (laughs) Emma, that's you because Kenyatta pointed to the side and I know that meant you. Yeah. And I think cultivate wealth, when I think about it, it encapsulates both this interaction with capitalism that we are in. It like acknowledges that, which I think Kenyatta referenced earlier. And 
offers us a way to move forward inside of that reality. As well, I think it offers this future-facing approach of like, what do we call our wealth in its fullest form? Like this knowingness that we were talking about, this connection to natural rhythms, right? The knowledge and community and relationships that we do have, the ways we have shaped space, like all of that sometimes gets erased in conversations about urbanism or buying the block. Like I'm sure there... Jay-Z and Nipsey Hussle are not the first people to sort of make that call, right? And so how can we learn about and acknowledge our inherent wealth as well as our community's wealth? What would we articulate that as an articulation? I could, I'm still trying to like, thingifying things is kind of problematic. So I'm still working that part out. But I think that just acknowledging the wealth that we do have is also not something that we're doing very often in many of our conversations because of the context. It's like, you have the lowest health statistics, you have the highest crime rates. It's just like, okay, there aren't research and stats that are as prevalent that are saying community cohesion here is ultra high, which actually is better in an emergency preparedness situation, right? But no one's saying Brownsville has high community cohesion, they're saying, how are we going to fix these crime stats? And it's just like very, it's just so frustrating. (laughs) So I think we are not trying to find. Our wealth is already there. And I think one role that Black Space can play is to see that and look at that, the, the various and diverse kinds of wealth that we have, and use that as a building block for how we solve something like high crime rate or whatever. So I think there's Cultivate wealth is expansive, as well as acknowledges some of the stuff that we're just in and the legacy of wealth building in this country, which is very fraught. So (laughs) I think it's a both and. Kenyatta, you're up. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think it's hard, though, because we are in this capitalist system. Like we're our collective as a nonprofit, we're a nonprofit organization. We can't get away from money like to operate. We have to deal with that. And so I want to acknowledge that while like I personally would love to see and I'm interested in always like building systems outside of what this I think the black capitalism you're alluding to with like the Jay-Z reference. Right. That's not what we're trying to do. And I think this is why we try to actually kind of. I guess, push through and like poke at what is money doing for people, right? And when we think about what it is, it's providing people with this ability to fail, this ability to try new things, this time, right? And so I think it allows us to live in a future and even a present, right? We speak about always trying to live in this present and future where some of these things don't exist, the wealth that we need is not is what we named in the manifesto and not so much like the dollar bill piece. But I think to what Emma's saying, it's like this both piece because we still are in the present operating within this kind of like capitalist system. So we have to recognize and think about cultivating it all. Absolutely. As promised, I want to ask one more question, which is the margin question, right? Because anytime I see this acknowledgement or longing for the things that are further out in our visions. It's interesting to me. I had a previous show and before this one, and we our tagline was culture exists at the margins, right? That it's in those spaces that one can't as readily see that new things 
bubble up, right? It's folks on the margins that ask the questions because things aren't working. Before the matrix was co-opted by racists and conservatives, that was why most of Zion looked like people of color, right? Because they were the ones that would most likely say, this mess sucks, right? Like what's going on here? And then Morpheus would show up and everything would get worse. Um, but I say all that to say that as, as you think about seeking the people at the margins is the way in which you frame it. How do you do the work of pulling those folks in or offering them a space to participate in and be a part of what you're building? Because this is, like you said, a growing community and an essential one. So I want to kind of give you both an opportunity to speak to your thoughts on margins, and then we'll get to the drop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I definitely agree with the piece around margins being like a place of power, like, cause you just, there's so much knowledge there. For us, I was going to mention this earlier when we were talking about urbanist. I think while there's been this piece of kind of training ourselves as this quote unquote, I'm using the parentheses, urbanists that are like trained through these schools, there's also urbanists that are not trained in schools. And we very much acknowledge that and like try to co-create with folks and like then introduce sometimes this terminology. Cause like we just, so many different like places, you just don't use this, like some of these more technical terms, but it doesn't mean that you're not doing the work. So I think one way that this comes up for me is just like thinking about like <laughs> when the work we did in or our, and continue to do, but like the beginning of this project in Brownsville, New York, we talked a lot about cultural preservation. And when we were talking to folks about cultural preservation and whether they're cultural preservationists, sometimes folks were like, eh, like, I don't, <laughs> that's not really like the term I'm using on a random Tuesday. And it wasn't one that we were using either, but we learned it from being in these different fields, right? And being exposed to that. So I think there's a point of like, a part of seeking people at the margins is like recognizing that the margins is not like some special place where people don't have resources, but like flipping it, it's a place with like a lot of knowledge that needs to be more put on platforms so that they can like help guide like what the world's doing. So I I think that's why we try to co-create or why we do co-create. Our projects, we often are not like, or we just, not often, we are not going and saying, okay, we're going to build this space for you. It's into the design with plan with principle. And I think that that's where the Sikh people at the margins is recognizing them and us, because a lot of us identify as people of the margins that have had some privilege. And I want to acknowledge that, right? Like there's privilege that comes along with going to some of these institutions, starting, there's class privilege that starts to show up within the black community and a lot of different other like heteronormativity and all that other piece. So I want to acknowledge that, but we also in different, in a different pieces of our experience are people of the margins and we know there's power there. Yeah. And one of the things that came up maybe last year was as we were getting different reflections into the finished, which I don't want to call it finished manifesto, but someone commented about that principle in particular and said, okay, you having this center and marginal language is already, you're like reproducing these systems that we don't actually need in that way. And I don't think I've resolved that. And it opened up my mind to thinking, oh, maybe we need manifesto 2.0. And what would that look like? to revisit the principles, because I do think it should be a living document. And what could that look like? And with the voices we now have around the table, what new ideas might spring forth to add to this collection? 
And so I feel like you're kind of hitting a soft spot here where I'm like, I don't have an answer yet in my learning about how to reframe something around margins and center. Because when you're saying margins, it kind of implies that you are in the center, right? And there's this undertone that I think we should address and think about. And maybe where we look to that is some like natural ways of organizing to fix or advance that particular principle. So I'm feeling a little like tender spot with that particular principle out of every, all of the others in the manifesto. So thank you for shining a light on it. (laughs) It kind of propels me to do a little more personal work. I agree with that. And thank you for naming that, Emma. That did come up for us. And it's something that we have to I'm excited when people challenge us to keep thinking like that's well, what we want to do. Manifesto 2.0 and the deep dive 2.0 as you as you work through and we all work through these very real challenges. Another opportunity to have a conversation. I grew up in Brownsville. So hearing about the work and all that kind of stuff, it's is important, right? Because the Brownsville of the 70s and 80s was wild, <laughs> you know, and I'll leave it there because I want to get to the drop and we can do this likely forever. So y'all got to bring me out to brunch when we can actually do that again in spaces. So I'm, I'm always down to raise a mimosa. So, uh, yes. <laughs> or five. Critical organizing yeah. tool. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I want to get to the drop and the drop is an opportunity for us to share just something that we think our listeners should be aware of that is open-ended and could be anything. So I have a drop. I hope both of you have drops, uh, plural. So do you want me to start or do you want to start? Y'all think it too hard about this. I'm just going to go ahead and start. I, I, okay. <laughs> I was looking at quizzical faces. So I was like, okay, let me just start. And then I'll needle both of one of you at a time. Cause mine is real fast. My drop. And I want to make sure I read it correctly is a book that I've been revisiting over the past couple of weeks with some workshops and talks I've been doing. And it's called seeing like a state by James C. Scott. And it's a, really interesting study and meditation on how we organize space as the state looks for perfect solutions where there aren't perfect solutions. And it uses a lot of natural Mm -hmm. examples that I love. And it's just been something really bubbling up with me again. So again, it's called Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott. So Kenyatta, you're up with your drop. Okay. I have two drops. One is a book that a dear friend gifted me and I've just been enjoying so much. It's called Black Futures. It was edited by Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham. And it just is this like juicy, juicy love letter to Black people. And it's something that was really nice. I'm not done with it. So I'm just like unpacking it. And it's just, it's so great. And it's visual. It's also has like poems and words, just all these different mediums that I, I really enjoy. And I enjoyed it my other drop, which was Joshua Tree, California. That's my drop. Like go find, if you're in California, go to Joshua Tree, California, socially distanced because COVID is real. Or if you just have like a local or near nature, space of nature, being alone in nature is like just really, really incredible. And I didn't realize how important it is to sit on a boulder in the middle of nowhere. That's perfect. Emma, you're up. Your drop or drops. Yeah, I have two and maybe three or four or five, but I think I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll copy Kenyatta and do two. 
So one book that I really relished in was We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women. It was an exhibit that is traveling, but also is an anthology and sort of book that really helped sort of hearkening back to what I was saying earlier about Black feminist organizing really helped me understand and affirm like some of the ways that we are working and building the organization and centering people inside of a like place-based, design-based sort of thrust is important and that we have a legacy that we're building upon and it really made the work feel a lot lighter. And so I guess in general, just looking back on what people have been doing and feeling like you can confidently stand on their shoulders in general, I would say is a drop, but also then this book was really helpful to kind of meditate on our practice of building this organization. And then the other one that I love is this one, Black Lives at the Paris Exposition 1900 by W. Well, it's not by W.E.B. Du Bois, but it's uh, featuring all of these data visualizations of Black life at the time, which really beautifully, creatively, like, and from a data-driven, almost an engineering sort of in design space, just highlights the richness and of Black life at the time, but also of like how we can share our knowledge for ourselves and with others in a really succinct and and beautiful way. So that also feels really inspirational, especially looking at the manifesto and that being also a beautifully designed way to like have people come along with you and really underscore just things that are important that people wouldn't like this visual uh, language that he's using really helps many, many, many kinds of people access and understand who we are, where we're going. And I just love that. It's very generous, very visual and simple. Two great drops from both of you. Very much appreciated. I got some things that I'm going to be checking out now after this. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I always feel like when I have guests on, like the both of you, we just only touch on We're just scratching the surface, but we want to provoke, we want to go deep and then have people, myself included, do additional work because this stuff is really, really important. So I want to thank both of you for being on the deep dive with me. Thank you for having us. It's been just a pleasure. I feel like we could talk all day. (laughs) Yeah. And thank you. Yes. Thanks for picking at our brains a little. I think it's such a treat to be able to feel heard. And so thank you. Absolutely. Thanks so much again. It's been a pleasure having both Kenyatta McLean and Emma Osere join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.